I can still see Avi Lusky in the summer before fourth grade in hot, humid Houston, Texas, where I grew up. Uh, there were a gaggle of boys that ran together. I was the youngest of them. My next-door neighbor was Scott Jones. I lived next door to the Joneses all my life. Uh, Steve Smintek, Jerry Lay, and others. And we were a pack of kids that ran. And we had uh, dirt clod wars. And we built forts. And we played tackle football in fields. And we uh, ran, 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 uh, rode bikes everywhere. And uh, people didn't lock their back doors. They left their keys in the ignition of their cars. Uh, it wasn't Mayberry, but it was close. And we had a delightful childhood. You could walk into someone else's home and grab a lemonade or a peanut butter sandwich. It was the way we were raised. Avi was probably a college graduate. And um, he, from our vantage as boys, he was this man's man, iconic guy. And uh, he wore a gold chain and cologne. And we played every sport imaginable, and no one minded that Avi was always the quarterback. No one minded that Avi was always the pitcher. No one minded because not only was he great, but he was an encourager. He was the most delightful human being. And uh, I, again, I was the younger one. I was lanky, very uncoordinated, and he would tell me how to do things. He would show me how to do things. And wherever Avi went, there were a gaggle of boys that would follow Avi and all the escapades of being a child. And even our parents loved him. And I think back on that, I can still see him. I can still see him without his shirt, sweating, shooting baskets in his driveway. And I still have a good memory. Because he was a consummate encourager. He was a man, from whatever his being raised, however he viewed life, um, he was a good man. We don't have a lot of obvious anymore. And more importantly, in the Christian community, we need a lot of men and women who would be like an Avi Lusky. How much more important would it be to encourage someone in their faith to always be their champion, always be their cheerleader, show them how to get in position to metaphorically swing the bat or throw the ball or catch the ball or to block or to tackle? In this passage, the elder statesman, Apostle Paul, is going to point out two men. We're going to look at them individually this week, Timothy, and next week, Epaphroditus, God willing. It, they're also like, oh, by the way, passages. And initially, I thought I would teach the whole block. And the more I started studying these two individuals, I thought, no, we need to just take our time and take a look at these two men. Paul has transitioned from an exposition that reaches the heights. We talked about the kenosis, that God, the Son, Jesus Christ, emptied himself, took on the form of a bondservant, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then in like manner, we're to be humble and to obey. He's the example. So that's the way Christ wants us to live. And now Paul transitions with these two passages in one way, they're sort of updates like, how's the family? How's the weather on the farm? In other respects, they are illustrating what humble obedience looks like for other Christians. Let's look at this passage, chapter 2 of Philippians, verses 19 to 24. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. 
for I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. Verse 22. But you know of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. So these two examples. Let's look first of all at the sending of Timothy, verse 19. It's a very easy passage. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send him to you. If you want to know the backstory, Acts chapter 16 and 17 are passages you might want to read. Because this tells us about who this Timothy is, how he was a faithful servant, a disciple of Paul's, and his relationship to him. And this, this builds on a theology. Oh, by the way, the book of Acts is the transition. It is, leads us from the Gospels into the New Testament. Jerusalem, Jesus said, Judea, Samaria, and the remotest part of the earth. That was Acts 1.8. The church is born in chapter 2. Pentecost begins. They stay in Jerusalem. Jesus brings persecution on the church to get them out of Jerusalem. And then the diaspora, the spread, the sowing seed, same word in Greek, begins to sow the seed and get it out of Jerusalem proper. The back of your Bible, if you still use a real Bible, a book Bible, a hardbound leather copy, you're a good person. Uh, if you use one of those, there are missionary journeys with maps. And those maps, oh, by the way, we never look at them. They might be stuck together in the back of your Bible. But those maps trace the geography of Paul being the one taking the gospel to the Gentiles, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the remotest part of the world. Those circles, if you will, if you look at them, are the story of the geography of Paul being the chosen elder statesman apostle of Christ to go take the gospel out of Jerusalem proper. Along the way, when they planted churches, Ephesus, Thessalonica, Colossae, Galatia, when they planted these churches, Timothy and others are the disciples of Paul who are the implementers. We have the two letters, First and Second Timothy. We call those the pastoral. That's Paul, the elder statesman, writing the younger Timothy. This is how we do church. This is how we lead. This is how we conduct ourselves in the family of God. This is what the roles of men and women are, the roles of deacons, of elders. This is how we pray. This is who we are. Prescribe and teach these things, Timothy. So Timothy, if you think about churches with bishops, Timothy would be a bishop of a kind. Because he was over these churches that had been planted by Paul's missionary journeys. Make sense? So we're, all of a sudden he's introduced, sort of, or by the way, Christy mentioned in verse 1 about Paul and Timothy. And there's some discussion about was Timothy helping him write the term in, is amanuensis, a person who writes, not just a person that takes dictation, but they write the letter with Paul. And maybe he's helping him in this. But in any event, we get this insight on sending Timothy. He's a disciple, he's like a son, and he's commissioned by Paul to do the follow-up work. Paul says he wants to be encouraged in verse 19, that I also may be encouraged. If you read that quickly, you'd think he wants to encourage them. He's really saying, I want to hear. I want to know how you're doing. 
when uh, my parents were living, and we would talk at least once or twice a week on the phone. They wanted to know about each of the grandchildren. How's Hannah? How's Jesse? How's Devin? How's Sarah? They want to hear an update. Because why? They want to be encouraged by how their grandchildren, not my children, their grandchildren are doing in life. The word encouraged here is unique in the New Testament. Not the English word, but the Greek word. It's the word eupsyche. E-U is a prefix in Greek that means good. Euphonium, euphemism, eulogy, good words. So eupsyche here is good psyche. Psyche is a Greek word we bring into English and use for psychology. You put the words together in the way it's used, the King's English said, to be of good comfort. So Paul is saying, I hope to send him to you that I may be comforted. Some translations say, be of good courage. But it's an important word because the reason I belabor it is he's saying, I, I want to hear about how you're doing. It's important to me because we, because we planted this church there and I want to know how you're growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So part of the reason Paul is sending Timothy is so that he'll receive encouragement. One scholar, Peter O'Brien, writes on this word. The word form appeared in Hellenistic gravestones. So think about reading Eusyche. A good encouragement, a good reminder, a good thing about this person. It also occurred in cheering people up. So that's what Paul's looking for. His character in verses 20 to 22, Paul writes of Timothy's character. Uh, Richard Mellick writes, these verses contain one of the highest commendations possible. Not to be overusing the, the superlative, but that should make us stop a little bit. Well, what's he going to say in a couple of sentences that Mellick would say the highest commendation possible? First of all, he says, I have no one of kindred spirit. Um, any of you Anne of Green Gables fans? When my girls were younger, uh, Cindy had the VHS of all the Anna Green Gables. And on wintry days in Northern Virginia where the snow was deep and the fireplace was on and the cider or hot chocolate, I can see my two older girls with their elbows on the carpet and their head in their hands watching the VHS of Anna Green Gables. And uh, reading the books is torture for men. But nevertheless, uh, she talks a lot about a kindred spirit. She wants someone that knows her and she her, and they have this great relationship. That's a good illustration of kindred. Some of you know my friend Dave Gibson, who's taught here on occasion. Dave is, he used the expression to me years ago, you're the brother I never had. We have the same brilliant, exquisite humor that no one else understands. <laughs> our wives loathe our sense of humor because they don't appreciate the quality and depth of our humor. Never the mind. We use the same joke 364 times a year, but they don't appreciate that. We have similar interest. We had similar training. We think a lot alike, and that's a kindred spirit. Paul says, no one like him. Timothy's my kindred spirit. We get each other. You got a friend like that, I hope? You get each other? If you have a sibling like that, you're greatly blessed. But in the body of Christ, you may well have a friend like that. 
Three terms he uses to explain this kindred spirit. The first is genuine concern. The second has to do with seeking other people's interests. And the third has proven worth. Briefly, genuine concern. Uh, it's, just, it's one of those words in the New Testament. You know the word jealous can be good or bad? So if you're dating a boy or girl in high school or college and someone else is getting in on your territory, you're jealous of that. But when you're married, you better be jealous of your marriage. So this word is not unlike that, because in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, it says, be anxious for nothing, same word. So how the word is used tells us what he means by it. And I think it's kind of delightful to say, I'm a little anxious about how you're doing, in a good way. I want to hear an update. It's been too long. The second one is that they seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. Having an interest in others is aligned with chapter 2, verse 4. It's aligned with putting others before you. And as I tried to explain then, we don't wake up every morning not thinking about ourselves ever. But the objective of a growing Christian, maturing person is I care about other people. I think about their interests. Um, I have a friend who lives in uh, Virginia, and we talk on the phone frequently. He's one of the most intelligent men I know. And whenever we schedule an appointment, that's the kind of guy he is, we schedule an appointment on the phone, and uh, we talk, and he says, starts asking me questions. And I go, wait, how, how are your kids doing? He goes, I'm not finished. And he continues to ask me questions about me, about Cindy, about our kids, about our grandkids, about life in this chapter. And it's so hard to, and then I, okay, I need to update on you. I'm oh, sorry, I got to go. You got a friend like that? Paul says, when I look at Timothy, he's more interested in you and Christ working in you than other people. Because after all, we all like to talk about ourselves. Or most people do, right? They seek their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. More importantly, just how are you doing? What's the Lord teaching you? I hope you have a group of friends, two, three, four, long-term friends that you talk about what God's doing in your life. If you don't, you're missing out on one of the most wonderful blessings of the body of Christ. And they might be right in front of you. They might be right next to you, and you just don't know it yet. Third, his proven worth. Um, he talks about him like a son. Um, I love Westerns. Maybe you think bad of me, but I love Westerns. Love them. Great theology in Westerns. Great theology. In fact, all science fiction movies are just Westerns in another place. Check me out on that. They're all the same way. You can storyboard every Western on a 3 by 5 card. From Rifleman to Have Gun Will Travel to Matt Dillon, doesn't matter. They're all the same. Very clear. Good and evil. Black and white. And there's often a sub-story or a sub-line of a guy that has a ranch hand. Indelicate and politically incorrect. They call them half-breeds in Westerns. And that young man was adopted or taken along on the property of the ranch hand. And he grew up in many storylines. That ranch hand is closer than the landowner's own sons. You've seen that theme in other ways. This, he's like a son to me, Timothy says. 
Paul says, Timothy's like a son to me. He's got your interest in mind in Christ Jesus. He's concerned for other people, and he's proven. Again, we'd have to go back to Acts 16, verses 19 to 40 to see what he's talking about contextually. But for conversation and brevity's sake, I trust this guy. I've seen this guy. He's a faithful servant. He's a good steward. He's doing the work of the ministry when others have their own interest in mind, or that cryptic phrase where Paul talks of Demas having loved this present world, left him behind. I was in um, seminary and I had to take, uh, had to do a field ed requirement where you do an internship, and we were attending a church. Cindy and I were in those days that we loved to death and went to the elders and said, can I do an internship here, which means sitting in on elders meetings and spending some time with the pastors and so forth, and they were gracious to let me do it. Um, They didn't have a chairman of the board. It was more like a brethren church. If you understand brethren churches, they were ruling elders. They didn't have a pastor. They had a teaching elder. Um, But uh, Dr. Alan Hull was, for all intents and purposes, the chairman, although he would never acknowledge it. But he was, is a good and godly kind man. And I remember in, in that class having to write something, you have to write a paper, right? So I talked to him and I asked him some questions and I said, if, I know the qualifications of the elder. I can name most of them without even looking at the text. If you had to boil it down, how would you describe the role of an elder shepherd? And without pause, he said, Michael, you got to care about people got to care about the flock of God. This is why too many elder boards that become businesses or managing HR issues or budgets or building programs or whatever, which are important part of life of the church. No, the elders need to shepherd the flock of God among them. The elders need to care about people. The elders need to be in small groups teaching and walking alongside people and being an example of a good marriage and good parenting and good dealing with problem teenagers. Michael, do you care about people? John Walvoord writes a sober paragraph on this section. How sadly true that in the church of Jesus Christ so few have a genuine devotion to Christ and unselfishly serve the church. Um, That's a little tiny commentary that Walvoord wrote. And I read that two times and went, it's unseemly to read it, but it's true. And then I started thinking about Stonebridge. There is always intrinsic danger of naming names because you leave out names. In Romans chapter 16, Paul the Apostle has almost an entire chapter devoted to the people who were fellow workers, who risked their neck for the gospel, who helped Paul. He named people by name. I've said many times, Cindy and I have talked about this as recently as yesterday. Stonebridge Bible Church would not exist without Wayne and Patty Wolf. Period. We would not have the incredible AV streaming technology without Paul and Michelle Reeves. Period. We would not have the great documents of how to do a church without Charlene Geralds. Period. I could go on, and I'm going to leave people out. I don't mean to hurt your feelings. My point is, I read that paragraph, and I read this and go, we're pretty blessed. We're pretty blessed. Because even though Walbert says how sadly true, has so few, I would say, 
how greatly blessed we are because we have so many who said, I'll help, I'll serve, I'll get involved, I'll do this, and I'll make it a priority, not, oh, by the way. Verse 23, therefore I hope to send him immediately, Paul says of Timothy, as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. So finally he summarizes in these two verses what he hopes and intends for the church and for Timothy. Um, It's interesting insight because if we piece together Paul's, you know, to die is gain, but to remain on in the flesh is for your benefit. And we get this back and forth. So the two tensions in these verses are, Paul might be a martyr. Best case, he'd remain in prison. Worst case, he might be a martyr. Or maybe his release was imminent. In that case, he would go with Timothy to see the Philippian believers. But we'll come back to why I'm stressing this for a moment. But he's summarizing the ministry of Timothy saying, if I'm out there, I'm going to send you the best I got. And you all know who that is. Two lessons. Number one, we need examples. We need Aviluskis who are believers in Jesus Christ. We need men and women who are consummate encouragers. We need men and women who will pursue and encourage and cheer up and bring along people in the faith. Warren Wiersbe writes of this passage, the submissive mind is not the product of an hour's sermon or a week's seminar or even a year's service. The submissive mind grows in us as, like Timothy, we yield to the Lord and seek to serve others. We yield to the Lord and we seek to serve others. This is what Philippians is about, thinking a little less of myself and a little more of others. The Western American Christian is an I, me, my society. Let's just acknowledge it. How I feel, what I like, what I get, what I want, what I expect. What's the church going to do for this? What's going to do for me? I want this. That's who we are. That's our nature. Wiersbe says, yield to the Lord. That's what the text is saying. Think more of others, a little less of yourself. I don't think you'll ever think always of others. But to grow in Christ is to think more of others. And as we've mentioned before, that helps your personal depression problems as well. Because you're getting out of yourself. It's not simple or a cure-all. I don't mean to be trite. But it's a good thing to put others' concerns ahead of yours. Um, Who is your example when you think about someone who's humble and blameless. Who's your example when you think about who you look up to? Cindy and I were early married, and um, I remember looking intentionally for older couples that we could learn from. When the first church I served in Texas, lovely people, wonderful people, but I looked around the room, and there were three or four marriages that I thought, okay, I, I really look up to and respect that marriage. That's sad to say, but it's true. And so as we grew in our own marriage and our own problems and our own parenting, we were always looking for those who were ahead of us in life, who loved Christ and were growing. Cindy and I have told the story on radio broadcasts and other media that there was a couple named Gary and Karen Nelson, 
And she will tell you, and she would say it here, as she said in the past, Karen Nelson saved our marriage. Karen was four years ahead of us in marriage and family, and they befriended Cindy and me. And I was a jerk as a young husband. I was, no defense. I didn't know any better. And Gary and Karen came alongside and modeled. They were great Christians, but they teased each other in a fun way. They encouraged each other in a good way. They had a strong marriage. They enjoyed life. And that wasn't our first year of marriage by any stretch. And so people came along. And as I got older, I was always looking for the couple that was 4, 10, 20 years ahead of us. What did they do right? I'm not that smart. Entropy's tough to beat. How am I different than the masses of people? And this is one of the challenges of each generation is you've got to find other people as your example. You know, in broad terms, are you a complainer or a contributor? We're friends, right? I can ask that question. Are you a complainer or a contributor in your marriage, in life, at work, in your neighborhood, with your kids? First year, second year of this church in Texas again, I was there, and um, there was Dr. Hull. Is, he was a nephrologist. He was a leader in, um, in the whole dialysis centers. He built these independent centers so people, patients could go and two and three times a week get dialysis at a professional level and without going to a hospital, which is a whole different thing in those days. Very good businessman, very good National Kidney Foundation president many times over. Brilliant man good godly elder and so i'd been at this little church for about two years and i hit a wall and so i called dr hull and said can i have lunch with you and talk to you and we put it on the schedule and i went to his office and he was a busy guy his desk was implosion of papers and he had two assistants in the room and he was signing things with this big fountain pen and there were two subways and two cans of cokes on the edge of his desk that was lunch and after he cleared out the people from his office he told me to start on my sandwich. I was munching on my sandwich, drinking my Coke. And he says, so what can I do for you, Michael? And I start complaining and whining about this church that I was supposed to be the pastor of. I did not go on for more than a few minutes. And he stopped me. And he said a word that rhymes with which that I won't say. Did you come to blank and moan or do you have a question? And he looked at me over his reading glasses. Michael, go home. When you got something to ask me, come back. Best advice anyone could have ever given me. I needed an older man whom I respect to this day to tell me, buck up. Go figure it out. Clarify the issues. Don't just come and waste my time whining and moaning. I don't mean to be cavalier or inconsiderate with people that struggle, but I needed Alan Hull to kick me in the proverbial pants at that chapter of my life. I need examples. We've all heard the expression, you know, we need a Barnabas and a Paul and a Timothy, but I'd like to turn that up a little bit to say you need to be a Barnabas, you need to be a Paul, and you need to be a Timothy at certain parts of your life. 
I remember when uh, different mentors of mine passed away, and my peer in our mid-60s were, you know, complaining about this. And one of them said, you know, like it or not, we are now those men. And I was like, no, 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 I can't hear this. Number one, I don't want to be that old. Number two, I don't want that weight. I had a friend that stayed with us this week for uh, some time, and he had Dr. Hendricks as a professor, as did I. And we were opining the days of when Prof was around and Prof now with the Lord. And, and we, very sad moment, said, you realize the generation doesn't know who Howard Hendricks is? But they're God's servants. Billy Sunday's Tabernacle is a dilapidated museum, but there was a time when more people came to hear Billy Sunday than probably second only to Billy Graham. So God uses people. Are you an example? This growing up, men and women. Growing up is less about me and more about others. Growing up is to whom am I a Barnabas? To whom am I a Paul? And where are the Timothys in your life and mine? Back in grad school, I had to write this big paper about my philosophy of ministry. It was 30-some percent of the grade. It was an all-semester project, and I worked on it hard. We'd read a lot of books and wrote a lot of words, and no one ever asked to see my paper. They ever asked to see your philosophy of ministry paper? They never asked. I was so proud of it. It was a good paper. About three years in, I thought, well, no one's ever going to read it. So I wrote a thumbnail one. And it's five points. I'll share four of them with you. Number one, everybody needs a friend. Number two, everyone is under-encouraged. Number three, everyone's insecure. And number four, everyone appreciates undivided attention. Everybody needs a friend. Everybody's insecure. Everybody's under-encouraged. And everyone appreciates undivided attention. Now that should tell you more about me. That's what I needed to learn. Other people are more important. Michael, do you care about people? Dr. Hall asked me. Do you care? Paul says, Timothy has your interest in mind, the gospel's interest in mind. He's more concerned about that than himself, and he's proven. And you'll like him. You'll respect him. Secondly, the most confident ground on which to stand is the phrase, if God wills. If God wills. It's implicit in the passage, but Paul is in a situation where he doesn't know if he's going to live or die. He might be that martyr. He might remain imprisoned. Or he might get out and eventually go see the Philippians. He doesn't know. And as I'm reading this little letter called Philippians and reading about the life of Paul and reading men who are far smarter in their commentaries of the life of Paul and Timothy, it strikes me there is a very different view of life because we make our plans. Think, think about finances. Those of us who are older can tell younger people all day long, live on less than you earn, avoid debt, save and give, and you'll be fine. You may not be rich. I guarantee you live on less than you earn, save, give, plan a future, and you'll be fine. Now, there's a lot more robust than economic plans, but the point is that's if then, right? Generally speaking. Now, if a weird cancer hits your family, your house burns to the ground, trauma, 
then it's a little different, right? This is not always is my point. Prosperity theology, not to be unkind, but to be truthful, they're charlatans. They're charlatans. To tell you, if you do this, then God will bless you is a lie. It's a lie. It's not kind to tell you that. I have friends that are lock, sock, and barrel. They're happy to attend and read these people's books and go to these churches. And I, I say to them, if the opportunity arises, I said, have you tried to export this to India or to Africa or to China? Go over there and preach if you give 10%, God will give you a hundredfold. Go over there and preach that God wants you to be healthy and he'll bless you. And if you live a certain way, that cancer will go away. Go over there and see how that works. They can't respond to that. Because it only works in an accommodating culture that's wealthy and materialistic. Only place it works. And it works really well for them. I remember watching one of these guys who I won't name, Robert Tilton. And he talked about if you give $100, that God would multiply it to whatever number it was. And I was watching with a buddy. And he said, can anybody tell Robert Tilton to apply that principle himself? Why don't you give $1,000 and God will give you all the money you need? I thought that was pretty clever. You see, if-then theology is a lie. There are principles. Proverbs are wisdom principles. They're not always There are wisdom principles if you live on less than you make, if you avoid debt, if you save and give, you will, generally speaking, be okay. But a catastrophe could come, and it could wipe out your savings. And you could have a child that had an exotic disease that you had to go into some great length to get treatments for. The idea of exercising faith has always been interesting to me. Um, The most egregious of this was a couple that came to visit a husband and wife that had a daughter, a teenage daughter with brain cancer, inoperable. And this charismatic prosperity theology couple telling them, if you believed, truly believed, your daughter wouldn't have cancer and you could leave the hospital. That isn't deceptive. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Because then it comes back to the person, you don't have enough faith. Who in here says, I have enough faith? If it's quantifiable, I've never had enough faith in anything in my life. It's not quantity. Jesus isn't saying if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can move a mountain, literally, right? If you could, I could drive my truck without getting in it. Because I believe I could. That's the little engine that could theology. I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. That's just, you know, muscle memory is all that is. It's really bad theology. Well, you don't believe in God enough. You don't have faith. What we're being told is you need to exercise. Scripture does not say that. If that was true, those of you that have the gift of faith could move a mountain. What is Christ saying? Faith is not quantifiable the way we measure it. Faith is do you trust me? Mark 9, the most wonderful illustration of that. The man that comes to Jesus and the disciples have been ineffective helping his son. And he says to Jesus, if you can do anything. I love that passage. Jesus, if, you, if I can. Do you believe in the Son of Man? And the man says, 924, 
Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Boom. Heals the boy. Best definition of quantifying faith you're going to find. I believe, but I don't believe. I want to trust you, but I'm having a hard time. And Jesus is saying, look, it's not the amount of your faith. It's do you trust me? And if you trust me, the outcome doesn't matter. Because I'm God. McFly, I'm God. You trust me, the outcome is mine, not yours. It's your verdict, not mine. The most confident place from a prison cell is indirectly what he's saying is if God wills. The, the apostle is good either way. I, I think Paul, I mean, put yourself, you're old, you're in a dungeon, you're in a prison, you're probably very uncomfortable, maybe he's sick. Is that your life or go be with Christ? What do you want to do? That's not a trick question. But if I remain on, maybe God will use me for your benefit. 